welcome to the Sacred City Life Podcast. This is your host, Pastor Justin Dean, pastor of Sacred City Church in Davenport, Iowa. And this podcast is all about helping you follow Jesus in the everyday, normal rhythms of life. And one of the segments on this podcast is what we're calling Theology for Everyone. Um, We believe everyone is a theologian. Uh, My six-year-old daughter, she's a theologian. And, um, you know, all the way on up. I'm a theologian. You're a theologian. We're all theologians, but we all need to grow in our understanding of who God is and what he's done. We need to be better theologians. Um, and so we want to help you do that. And we want to, we want to do that, not in some egghead, theoretical, philosophic, you know, upper echelons of, of the academy way. We just want to bring it down. We want to bring it down to the everyday person. So whether you're um, an electrician You know, listening to us right now while you're at work, whether you're driving kids to school and you're on your way right now, whether you are on your break and listening to this, whatever you're doing, we hope that this would be helpful to you. And we're just trying to help you understand scripture um, and understand God. And so we're working through the Westminster Confession of Faith, one of the earliest systematic theologies to help Christians understand the Bible in a systematic way. And we're just slowly working through it. Today, I've got my residents back in my office with me. So say hello, fellas. How's it going, How's it going? everyone? Good deal. Make sure everybody's got that mic right up on them. I did listen to an episode, and some of you that don't put the mic up to your face, it's very muffled when it's coming through. So eat that mic so everybody can hear you. They don't have to fiddle with their uh, volume on their radio. We are in the third chapter of the Westminster Confession of Faith, and it's all about um, election, predestination, and foreordination. This is a doctrine that has divided many. This is a doctrine that has confused many. This is a doctrine that goes against many of our kind of Western and American sensibilities. And so we're taking some time on it. We're going to go through, I think we're going to get through all three, the last three articles today, just because the last one uh, just kind of wraps it all up. And so what I would like to do is I'm going to read them for us, and then we'll come back through and uh, break them down with some scripture proofs. Is that cool? Yeah. All right. Actually, you know what I want to do? Before I do this, I'm going to skip. So we're at Article 6 and 7. I'm actually going to start with Article 8. And this is why. Listen to this. The doctrine of this high mystery of predestination is to be handled with special prudence and care that men attending the will of God revealed in his word and yielding obedience thereunto may from the certainty of their effectual vocation be assured of their eternal election. Okay. So shall this doctrine afford matter of praise reverence and admiration of God and of humility, diligence, and abundant consolation to all that sincerely obey the gospel. Some people want to say, why study predestination? Why talk about election? Why talk about foreordination? It just divides people. It's just divisive. It's confusing. It's a harsh doctrine. The Westminster divines here tell us 
first off, this doctrine is a high mystery, okay? It is kind of, it's not, it's not maybe difficult to understand, but to get to the end of it, it's a mystery, right? And it's meant to be handled with special prudence and care. Now, how, how can you, you can dismissively say things, you can characterize the person on the opposite side, you can character, it's, it's meant to be handled with care. And we want to do that. We want to do that today. We want to handle it with, with care. But the purpose of teaching and talking about predestination and election and foreordination is right here. That men attending the will of God revealed in his word and yielding obedience unto from the certainty of their effectual vacation will be assured of their eternal election. And basically they're going to worship God. So why do we study it? We study it because it's in the Bible. We're not called to study just the easy scriptures. Mm. Some people only want to, they literally, their whole Bible could be one verse and that's John three sixteen. Yeah. And that's a shame. You don't know hardly anything about God, hardly anything about yourself, or anything about the world we've made into, nor even about this, the salvation he's calling you into or the eternal life he's calling you into. The reason we talk about predestination and election for ordination is because this, Jesus has revealed it to us in his word and the Father has revealed it to us in his word and it's a mystery that's meant to bring about our own obedience. It's meant to help us be assured of our own, be assured of the eternal election. So, it's meant to bring um, certainty to us. Mm-hmm. It's not meant to go, oh, am I elect? Am I elect? Am I elect? It's not meant to bring fear. It's meant to be go to bring certainty to us. I am one of the elect because I've put my faith in Christ. I've believed in the gospel. I've been changed by God. So I have been elect. I mm-hmm. am elect. Mm-hmm. Right? It's meant to bring great worship. And it says, so this should bring praise and reverence and admiration of God and of humility diligence and abundant consolation to all who seriously obey the gospel. So the reason we talk about election is because one, it's in the word and two, there's huge benefits to studying the doctrine of election. Mm-hmm. We can be, we can see it. You know what? I'm saved, not by my own works, but by the work of Jesus. Guess what that means? I can't lose my salvation. Mm-hmm. No matter what happens to my brain as I get older, as I lose my ca- cognitive faculties, I am one of the elect. No matter if your son is bipolar and loses his his, hold on reality, if he is held by Christ, he's going to be eternally secure in Christ. There's there's great benefit in studying the doctrine of election. Okay? So that's... You guys got something to Uh, say? Maybe just an observation, um, especially of that word humility right there. I think what's interesting is a lot of like newly reformed. I mean, we have the cage stage, right? Because typically, I feel like when people understand this specific doctrine, it almost seems like humility is not what it produces. Yeah, yeah. So the cage stage is kind of in reference to a person who gets newly reformed or they come to understand the doctrine of election, maybe they're a new Calvinist or something, and they realize there's nothing I can do to earn salvation. And and they they go to Scripture and they usually study Scripture quite... And it's kind of an intellectual pursuit and you start putting things together and you realize that golden chain of salvation and you realize it goes all the way back to before the foundations of the world and I had nothing to do with it. 
and my youth pastor lied to me mm-hmm. or my old pastor or that free will Baptist guy lied to me or my mom lied to me. And, and, and then you just want to kind of, you, you just kind of rage and you want to convince everybody that there's nothing you can do. You're dead in your trespasses and sins and just, and, and, and that is true. And everybody, most people that I know go through something like that. We call it a cage phase because we're like, we should just put that person in a cage for a couple of years until they get, they get calmed down. Yeah. Um, and that's oftentimes that's, that's, that's what happens, but it shouldn't be because realizing that my salvation is not dependent upon my work at all should actually create deep humility mm-hmm. in me and, and not pride. Um, and the fact that I realized that I was sa- saved by Christ's election and salvation for me and not my own intellectual pursuit of Calvinism. Mm -hmm. Do you understand what I mean? So many times what happens is I, I would functionally say, Jesus saved me. I didn't do anything, but my actions show I actually figured this out myself by studying Calvinism, by studying scripture, by listening to reform dudes. And therefore I'm taking pride in the fact that I'm putting scripture together, that I'm understanding this and that you're not mm-hmm. right. Yeah. So why, so we're trying to, we're kind of doing two things at once. We're espousing Calvinism and yet rejecting the foundation of Calvinism yeah. at, at the exact same time, Yeah. you know? And that's a different, that's kind of a tightrope, a difficult tightrope to walk because mm. when God does save us, he does save us um, usually through a presentation of the gospel, through, through content that we have to think about and we have to logically, it had, that truth usually has to logically cohere in a system of thought. And so we're trusting in our faculties at that time, mm-hmm. you know? And so that that can be counterintuitive in a sense. It can lead somebody to, to take pride in what they figured out rather than just worship and thank Jesus for saving them and have that humble joy of a happy Calvinist yeah. that, uh, that trusts the same process he got me into this kingdom and into... Um, understanding the doctrine, maybe he's going to do the same thing in that person across the way, and he doesn't need need me to beat him over the head with, mm-hmm. you know, Romans thirteen. Sure, that's one thing. Like even with just discussions with other people that I know, uh, I Romans nine actually. I'm, I've been. I didn't I knew what you meant. Yeah, I said Romans thirteen, but I know people are going to correct me on the podcast. <laughs> but Romans thirteen is another scripture that I've been <laughs> having to deal with stuff with. So, go ahead, Bryson. Um but one of his um, main issues with Reformed theology, I guess specifically Calvinism, is he he looks at people who are Reformed and notices the arrogance and the almost theological pride that they have, and which I think shows another issue, like he's looking at people to inspire his theology and not the Bible, but also I think it is probably a, a disservice to the Bible and the doctrine that it leads to something other than humility. It just doesn't make sense to me. I don't understand how something, uh, a theology that's based on 
your election, not based on anything that you have done or will do, can result in the pride of that person. I don't, yeah. I just, it's confusing. Yeah. No, it's it's not logically coherent. It is um, counterintuitive. It's you know, it's yeah. It, it's but it's evidence that it is actually the grace of God because um, we're not living what we we're not living what we believe. Yeah, you know what I mean. And so we still have work to do. That that doctrine of election, even the gospel itself, has got to go deeper into us to con- to humble us. Yeah. You know, and so we can espouse something to be intellectually consistent and true, and yet not live out of, not obey the gospel. Mm-hmm. That's what I'm going to say. Not obey the gospel because yeah. the fruits of it haven't, aren't, aren't bearing in our soul. Yeah. You Just know? like you do the same thing with prayer, right? Like you say, prayer is a good necessary thing for your like sanctification, but I don't always pray like I should. It doesn't mean that prayer is sure. wrong, but it means that I just suck at praying. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. And if we were dead in our trespasses and sins and Christ raised us from the dead, um, and yet we still struggle with the flesh, that dead man that lives in us. And Paul says in Colossians to put off the old man and put on the new man. We should expect that old man to raise its ugly head mm-hmm. occasionally. And that ugly head looks like pride most of the time. Yeah. You know? So what yeah. do you say to the, the person that will say, um, if that person walked away from the faith, like they never had faith? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I would agree with that. Um, I would say if they walk away from the faith that Christ never had them. So they might have been around the church. They might have cognitively understood the gospel and yet they didn't trust it. And so they weren't, and so by their fruit, they show that they were not in Christ, Right. Um, because Jesus never loses one of his sheep. He's never lost one. He's never going to lose one. And so if you were in his flock, you will finish in his flock. Now, that doesn't mean there, there can be some exceptions as far, like I've already mentioned on this podcast, like someone goes out, someone has a mental breakdown. Someone um, commits suicide. Someone, whatever. There can be, but... If it's a cognitive, willful decision to abandon Christ in your right mind, then I would say that person never, never knew Christ. Yeah, or, and Christ never knew him in that intimate, in that intimate way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Once Jesus says "mine" over a person's heart, he never gives it up. Right. Yeah. <clears throat> so let's go into. Article six and seven. Um, so we're we're talking about really uh, predestination and foreordination here. We're talking about those he predestined for life with him, and those he foreordained with uh, for life apart from him. Right. Mm-hmm. That's what we're talking about in these two sections. First one is the elect unto glory. Uh, so I'll read it for us. As God hath appointed the elect unto glory, so hath he, by the eternal and most free purpose of his will, 
foreordained all the means thereunto. So we've talked about this a little bit last week. He doesn't just ordain or predestined the end. He also predestines the means. So when everybody says, well, if God's predestined me for salvation, then why preach the gospel? Why go to church? Why read the Bible? Why? Because he's predestined the means as well as the end. Um, do we have a scripture for that? Yeah, Second uh, Thessalonians 2.13. Stand firm, but we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the spirit and belief in the truth. Okay. Predestined you um, to be saved through the spirit by the truth, right? How do we get the truth? Preaching of the gospel. You preach the gospel, the spirit opens your ears to hear that gospel gives you the gift of repentance and that's and you repent and you're given faith by the Holy Spirit and you put your faith in Jesus. So he doesn't just predestine you to go to heaven. He predestines a preacher to preach the gospel. He predestines in a sense the spirit to use the, the word to awaken your spirit to hear the gospel, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. Yeah. Keep reading. Do we have another scripture for that or no? Or was it just that one? Just that one. Okay. Wherefore, they who are elected, being fallen in Adam, are redeemed by Christ. Man, the certainty of that statement is so good. Do we have a scripture for that one? Let's get there. <clears throat> this is Titus 2. I'm going to start in verse 11 because it's kind of a long sentence. Uh, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, this is the text right here. Who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. To purify, so read that one more time. To purify. To purify for himself a people for his own possession mm. who are zealous for good works. So the question again remains, who did Jesus die for on the cross? If he died for everyone, right, then in a sense, he didn't, he only made salvation possible for people. That means theoretically, Jesus could have died on the cross and his work on the cross could have been a complete failure mm -hmm. because theoretically he could have got up from the grave and no one believed. Right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. That means the work he did on the cross, if it was only, if it only made salvation possible for people who were going to eventually believe in him, no one potentially people could have just went like, ah, nah, no thanks. Yeah. And walked away. Seen that before. No big deal. On to the next thing. Mm hmm. But the scripture says, no, Jesus didn't make salvation possible. He actually saved a people for his own possession. So on the cross, the elect, he saved the elect. 
in actuality, not in possibility, he guaranteed we would be saved on the cross. So I, I saw a post, uh, I can't remember, maybe on Facebook or something, um, where somebody was asking the question, uh, if you, are, are there such things as like four-point Calvinists who pretty much, I mean, the only thing that they would direct would reject would be the L, limited atonement, the fact that Jesus, pretty much what you were just saying. Mm-hmm. Um, and my thoughts on that were, I don't think that that could really be a thing. I don't understand how you could reject limited atonement and also believe that someone is totally depraved. Because and then, So then you're going from four points to three points, and then it all just kind of breaks down well, there. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know about that. But some people just reject so when he's saying limited atonement, he's talking about the tulip of um, Calvinism, right? Um, if you're not familiar with that, you don't have to be. I'm going to tell you this. This was um, a debate, um, of kind of an intramural, intramural Christian debate between Calvinism and Arminianism, right? And... I'm going to go through it real quick. I might need help because I, I don't think about this very often, honestly. Um, T, TULIP, okay? Acronym, T, total depravity. U, unconditional conditional election. election. L, limited atonement. I, um, irresistible, irresistible grace. grace. P, perseverance of the saints, okay? T, total depravity of man. We can do nothing to earn salvation. We're totally depraved, so therefore we would never choose God if he didn't choose us, Mm -hmm. okay? Unconditional election. There is nothing we could do or ever will do that would cause God to choose us, to elect us. Mm -hmm. Unconditional. Limited atonement. Those two words don't sound right. We don't like them together. Limited atonement? Well, Jesus died for the whole world. What, what does that mean? Was there limits on Jesus' work on the cross? I don't like the language in my modern world, in the world that we live in, in our modern vernacular. I don't like the language either. Some have posited that we should call it um, not limited atonement, but... Um, it's a definite? Definite atonement. Yeah. So, again, he's not making salvation possible but he's actually definitely saving the elect, okay? Then we go on to um, irresistible grace. Well, I don't really like that language either because clearly scripture talks about we can resist the spirit, Mm -hmm. but what it's talking about is kind of, I would say, unconquerable grace Mm. where if if you're elect, the spirit's gonna get through to you. Whatever means he's gotta use, he's gonna conquer your will He's going to overpower your will in a gracious way, in a way that you would want. If you were actually free from sin, you would want him to do. Mm -hmm. Um, And he's going to free you from your um, slavery to sin in order for you to choose what you should choose, and that's him and his grace. Mm -hmm. Okay, And then perseverance of the saints, which means the Spirit will keep you. Jesus will keep you. You will persevere to the end, and therefore... Everyone who's elect will get to the new heavens, the new earth, not based on our own our own works. Okay, so that's tulip in a sense. 
Again, it was a very specific formulation of Calvinism and scripture to counter Armenian, Armenians and an Armenian doctrine. And so um, it doesn't really make sense to sometimes to our, our, our modern ears. And I've never taught, specifically taught on it, and I don't really teach on it, though I agree with, I agree with it, you know, in, in sense, I, I, I agree with it. So the limited atonement piece that you're questioning is, um, or could you, could, could you get away with limited atonement? Um, I don't think so, because I think the, the, the problem is what I've already alluded to is did Jesus make salvation possible mm-hmm. or did he make salvation definite yeah. for people? That's the ultimate question that you've got to get back to. I think he made, think about it. If he only made salvation possible, then it was, then he, then the, the future of Christianity, the future of redemption, the future of the gospel, the future of the world depended upon fallen man yeah. to somehow figure out how to find their way back to God and to repent and to embrace the gospel. Mm-hmm. Do you, th- do you think God would put that kind of responsibility on people like us? I just don't. I, I see yeah. he put that responsibility on Jesus to save the world. Mm-hmm. And when he died on the cross, it actually did something. Yeah. It paid off my debt and it secured for me salvation um, that wasn't dependent upon me figuring something out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So, wherefore, they who are elected, being fallen in Adam, we're all fallen in Adam, are redeemed by Christ, are effectually called unto faith, effectually called. That's a good word. Effectually called. Here's the difference. Some people think when I preach the gospel, it's kind of like me yelling out the door to my kids. Kids, time for dinner. Come home. I'm calling them, right? Mm -hmm. But that is not an effectual calling. It's up to them. They can respond to me or not. When I'm effectually called, it means the calling itself produces a change in the person that calls them forth. Whoa, what, do we have an example of that in Scripture? Yes, Lazarus. Mm-hmm. When Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth, he effectually called him. I'm going to tell you, I don't think Lazarus had a choice. Lazarus might have been like, no, man, I'm in glory. Leave me alone, bro. Yeah. Leave me alone. One theologian says, the reason Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth, and not just come forth, because if he would have said, come forth, everybody in their graves would have got out. (laughs) (laughs) Because Jesus's words have power, just like God's words had power. When God said, let there be light, he wasn't asking permission from the darkness. He was effectually calling light from the darkness. Mm. When Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth, he wasn't asking permission. He was declaring, effectually calling Lazarus out of the grave. When he said... Bryson, come forth. He said, Bryson, be saved. Kevin, be saved. Justin, be saved. Alex, be saved. And in one sense, we didn't have a, we didn't have a choice. Mm-hmm. And that's a good thing because if we would have, we would have chosen, yeah. nah, I'll stay dead in sin. Right? Yeah. 
I'll stay in bondage to my will, my will that's bent on sin. That's good. That is good, isn't it? Man, it make me want to worship. Make me want to smoke the cigar to the glory of God right now. <laughs> and now he's going to go through again what, what he calls what we call the golden chain of salvation. Effectually called unto faith in Christ by a spirit working in due season. Okay, so am I saying that just because I've been effectually called, I don't have to put my faith in Christ? No, that's part of the predestination of the means. Faith in Christ. Well, can I do that without his spirit? Nope. Faith in Christ by his spirit working in due season, right? So my daughters right now, have they put their faith in Christ? I don't know. They're they've, I'm believing they're effectually called. I'm believing they're one of the elect. They've been put in my household. They're, they're walking with Christ now. They would say they believe in Christ. But in due season, they will put their faith in Christ, I, I believe. And then they're justified, adopted, sanctified. So those are all aspects of our salvation. Justified, made right before God. Legally, like a court of law, we're forgiven of our sins, adopted, brought into the family of God, sanctified, we're being made into the image of Jesus, and so there's still work for us to do to be made more holy, in a sense, to be to be sanctified, right? To be made more like Christ in this life, and kept, so we can't lose our lose our salvation. That's all a part of salvation. Kept by His power through faith unto salvation. And then he's going to just clarify. Neither are any other redeemed by Christ, effectually called, justified, adopted, sanctified, saved, but the elect only. So he's, like, he's basically saying Jesus only died for the elect. The elect are the only ones saved. The elect are the only one justified. The elect are the only ones sanctified. That's what Jesus did on the cross. We got any scriptures we want to go yeah, to there? Sorry. Got a couple. Starting with uh, Romans 8.30. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Golden chain. Yeah. There it is. First uh, Peter 1.5. Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for our salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Mm. We're being guarded. We're being guarded. We're being protected. We're being kept safe. Yeah. Our salvation isn't dependent upon us. It's on Jesus. Yeah. It's good. Is that it? One more. First uh, John two nineteen. Miss second. I was in Romans. Romans nine. First John two nineteen. Yep. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not all of us. <laughs> Boom. There it is, Alex. That's the answer to your question. They left because they weren't, weren't of us. They weren't one of the elect. Um, is that a tough doctrine to hear? Yeah, it is. It is tough. Is it confusing sometimes because you've... Walked to that person, it seemed like they embraced Jesus and it seemed like they wanted wanted Jesus. Yeah. But we don't realize how deep, and I talked about it this a little bit this Sunday. Sometimes 
we come to Jesus to get what we really want. Mm. And so we're not really coming to Jesus. If we're coming to Jesus to get a wife, we're not coming to Jesus. We're actually just using Jesus to get our spouse. If we're coming to Jesus to get wealth and, you know, health and wealth and a community of people and acceptance and belonging and, um, you know, whatever, all the things that is that we use Jesus for, we're not actually coming to Jesus. We're, we're just using Jesus to get those things. I think you said, like, uh, it was really good. It stuck with me. And you, you put it like, he's not improving your old life. He is giving you a new one. So go follow your, follow your father. Yeah. And I thought that was really good. And that was yeah. deep. <sighs> occasionally, you know, I get deep. Just occasionally. <laughs> Just a little bit. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's 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 the reality. It's very easy to kind of come to Jesus just to get ask him to fix some things in my life and to improve my life, but that's not what it means to come to Jesus. So, so when those people walk away from Jesus, sometimes it's because they got what they really wanted. They got the spouse. And so they were never in Christ. They just came to church to find a good spouse, you know? Or whatever it is that they wanted, and so that's that's hard to understand and hard to realize. But I think it's something that that scripture teaches. And you look at the life of Judas. You know, did Jesus come to Jesus? Did Judas come to Jesus? Well, kind of. He walked with him for he lived with him for three years. He heard the gospel. He maybe potentially even did miracles. But we also hear some more of his story. He was in charge of the. The offering, right? He was in charge of the purse. He was in charge of the money, and he would often steal the money. And then we see him going to the chief priests and and selling out Jesus for some silver. And so we see that well, what really had Judas's heart? Well, it looks like money had his heart, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. He sold Jesus out for pieces of silver, and then he was stealing from the offering box. So maybe he was just following Jesus in order to get what he really wanted—money. Yeah. At the end of his life, what happened? I don't really know. It doesn't look like he repented. Even though he gave the money back and he was convicted of his wrong, he might have just been convicted of his wrong. He, he you know, it doesn't look like he, he repented for me. He yeah. killed himself, it looks like. So it's pretty brutal. It's pretty brutal. So I think we have precedent in Scripture to say, um, Judas, it doesn't look like he was ever... And Jesus said, right? Like, one of you is not of us. Mm-hmm. That's what he said. Yeah. One of you is not of us. So... He echoes that same language that we just that we just read. So, what would you say is the appropriate response of the Christian when somebody walks away from the faith? Well, I think there's several responses. First, grief. Um, it's. I mean, I think we should be deeply grieved. Now, I've been around this. I've been following Jesus and in ministry now for over 20 years. And I've seen this more times than I could count. And it hurts really bad every time. But let me just say this. I've also seen people come back. I've been doing it long enough to see those people walk away and be and I be grieved and I've also been doing this long enough to see those people come back to Christ which is brings great joy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But there's also I think there's an appropriate anger. Hmm. Paul sh- straight up says like you know, he's kind of angry. He says like 
Hymenius and Alexander, they've betrayed us and they've walked away from Jesus and have nothing to do with them. Yeah. I've handed them over to Satan. Let Satan have his way with them and we pray that they come back. So when I say there's an anger, it's okay to be angry that somebody walks away from Jesus because most of the time when they're walking away from Jesus, they're walking away from you too. And they're hurting you. They're hurting your family. They're hurting your friends. They're hurting your church. They're hurting your community. They're sinning against God. They're bringing damage. And so it's okay to be angry about that. And it's okay to say, all right, later. Good luck with that. And trusting they're going to go out in the world and, and, uh, and you really, and they're going to get what the world has to offer. And sometimes that means they're never coming back. And that's really sad. But sometimes that means they're going to reap what they sow and they're going to come and they're going to come back some, some day in the future, you know, but we shouldn't, we should, compassion isn't the only emotion or the only fruit of the spirit that we're meant to have. Christians get overwhelmed with compassion sometimes. And they they can't just be like, "All right, dude. Well, you're going to screw your life up. So, we'll be here when you when you're done." We we should be able to say some of those things sometimes. We have to. That's what church discipline is all about. When when we're supposed to cut somebody out of the fellowship and excommunicate them from the body, pe- modern people hate that. Pre-mod postmodern people right now, we hate that. But we've had to do it many times. We've had to do it several times in our church. Somebody's having an affair. They won't repent. All right. We don't think you're a Christian. You're out of our fellowship. You can't come to missional community. You can't come to our gathering unless you're willing to repent. We won't serve you the Lord's Supper. We're hoping that hurts you and grieves you so much, you're grieved under repentance. And so Christians need a backbone and a freaking spine and some strength and something other than compassion. Compassion just, oh, I just feel so bad for them and their kids and this. and Just keep on giving them grace upon grace upon grace and they can't draw a line in the sand and say, you're sinning. You're hurting you. You're hurting your family. You're hurting the community. Stop it or you're out and draw the line in the sand. So It's almost like a false compassion even. The most compassionate thing to do sometimes is to kind of let it sting a little bit so they hopefully do are, are grieved unto repentance. Like sometimes I feel like that's the most compassionate thing. To yes, yeah, and that that is you're right. It's probably a false compassion or overrealized compassion, or some people call it an empathy. Scripture never tells us to empathize with people. Some people think empathy has taken on too much weight in our society, where we're taught everywhere to think about the lowest common denominator in our society and and really feel for them mm. and feel sorry for them in a sense, mm. when it's like. Sometimes we're like, wait, wait, wait. No, no, no. I don't feel sorry for him. He's an idiot. He's ruining his life. He won't get a job. He won't stop smoking weed. He won't stop drinking. He won't stop. He's an idiot. I don't feel sorry for him for being an idiot. I feel sorry for his wife. I feel sorry for his parents. I feel sorry for his kids. I don't feel sorry for him. I think a lot of people just forget about like, there's also grace and forgiveness, you know, where when Peter walked away, you know, and he denied Christ, you know, he came back. And the hope is that they do come back. The hope. Yes. The hope is always restoration. Mm-hmm. That's the hope. But would restoration ever happen if Jesus hadn't said, 
get behind me, Satan, right. to Peter, yeah. and said, you're going to walk away from me. You're, you're going to fail. He said, nah. Yeah, <laughs> I'm not going to. Nah. Not me, not me, not me. You know, would would have, and Jesus specific, here's the, that's a factual calling. Mm-hmm. Um, wh- how did Jesus say it to Peter? He said, when you were, when, oh gosh, something along the lines, of course my mind can't get around it or can't grab the scripture right now, but it's something like, um, you're falling away, you're going to fall away, but when you're restored, restore your brothers or something like that. When you come mm-hmm. back, restore your brothers. It's something along those lines of like, eh, you're going to fall away, but don't worry. You're not going to, you know, you're going to come back. And when you do, just remember what I told you. I told you you were going to fall, and I told you you are going to be restored. Therefore, it's my word that's doing it. It's not your own strength. Yeah, right. Something along those lines. Yeah. <clears throat> so. All right. Is that it? So, section seven. Now, this is kind of, again, we talked about the predestination and the foreordination. And then there's a difference there that he predestines those who he uh, he is elected, but he foreordains those who are go- who um, he does not elect. And so let's let's read it and then let's explain it a little bit. So there's the elect, and then there's the rest of mankind. The rest of mankind, God was pleased, according to the unsearchable counsel of His own will. <laughs> Mystery. We can't get to the end of the mind of God. We don't really know. He, this is what he told us in the scripture, but we can't figure out, you know, the ends of it. Whereby he extendeth or withholdeth mercy as he pleaseth for the glory of his sovereign power over his creatures. Okay. Again, this is not God choosing You to go to heaven, God choosing you to go to hell, boom, that's it. No. This is every single one of mankind have earned hell, have committed sin, high treason. We are standing before the judgment seat of God. We've all been declared guilty with a death sentence, an eternal death sentence. We are all in the cells, the cells of our own bondage to the will to sin, right? And Jesus walks down the hallway, the death row, what do you what do you call that? Just death row, right? Yep. Is that what you call that? Mm-hmm. You walk he walks down the corridors of the jail, everybody's on death row and he chooses to extend mercy to some and withhold mercy to others. So he is not being unfair in, in that sense because no one deserves mercy, right? He's being gracious to extend mercy to some, right? Now, why would he withhold mercy? Well, as he pleases, for the glory of his sovereign power over his creatures, first off, He's sovereign. He doesn't have to give anyone grace. Period. To pass by and to ordain them to dishonor and wrath for their sin to the praise of his glorious justice. Okay. For some reason, we say, if God 
gives grace to some but not to others, that means God's not good. And yet, if a rapist stands before the judge and that judge says, life in prison or the death penalty, if it's that bad or whatever, we say, amen, good. Yeah. Why? We're upholding justice. We're praising the justice of the courts. That criminal is getting what he deserves, and we're saying our justice system is actually good and right and true for doing that, right? Yeah. So if that judge... So here's the, here's the, here's the scenario. When God gives grace to the elect... We look to God and we say, God, we praise your graciousness. You are glorious in your graciousness. But when God passes by, um, the rest of mankind and does not offer them that grace. And yet he gives them what their sins deserve. We are to praise his justice, yeah. mm-hmm. that he is a just God and he gives to sinners what they deserve. Mm-hmm. And also, in a sense, what they want. They want to be free of God. They want to be their own gods. They want to be away from him. And so he gives them what they want. But that's hell. That's what I was thinking is there's like this like misunderstanding that somehow they think people who would object to this think that there are just like these people who aren't elect that are just craving God and desiring God and, and really wanting to get to God, but God's like not giving them the cold shoulder. And <laughs> that's just, that's not the case. Yeah, that's, there are none who seek God, none. Yeah. I think the hard part of it is like definitely if like everyone was raised in the family in the church and you see everyone, you know, coming to fellowship and everyone's gathering, but there's one of your siblings that's, you know, just saying, I don't want nothing to do with God with you know their whole life that they have heard the gospel. And I think that's the, the hard part of where it comes into where you're saying, like, I, I feel like they, they know the gospel, but they're just, are they just turning away from it? Are they, are they refusing to hear it? And I just think that's for a lot of people, it's just hard to hear that. Yeah. To see that, you know, yeah. It, oh, it is hard. It is very hard. Um, and honestly, we don't know. We don't know until the end of that guy's story. Right. Because I hate to say this, but the deathbed confessions are real. Yeah. You know, and you can live your life away from God and yet still be redeemed. And at the end, go, man, I've been fighting my whole life, kicking against the goads, as they would say, kicking against the spirit. And I freaking screwed my life up. And I realize now on my deathbed, yeah. you know, and, and there, there is that reality. Yeah. But there's also the reality of Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Same family, and one is elect and one's not elect. And before they were formed in their mother's womb, he knew which one was what. Yeah. And God is sovereign and we are not. So we got any scriptures on that one? Yeah. Uh, Matthew eleven twenty five and 26. Come to me and I will give you rest. At the time Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, 
that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding the revealed them to the little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. He hides them. He hides them from the wise, but gives them to little children. So he resists the proud, gives grace to the humble. Mm-hmm. He hides them from the non-elect. He gives them to the, the elect. Go ahead. Got another one? Uh, Romans 9. Uh, this is verses 17 and through 22. Uh, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, Why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another vessel for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make his power and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? Mm. So that text difficult to read sometimes. There's two different vessels. There's vessels of wrath and vessels of mercy. And God has given common grace to all, endured for a long time, vessels of wrath, and he gives special grace to some, the vessels of mercy, those who are the elect. And um, the common call is, well, who are you, God, to determine who's a vessel of wrath and a vessel of mercy? And... uh, Paul's like, it's not about who he is. It's about who you are, moron. <laughs> who are you to, to talk to him? Did you make the world? Someone, always, someone says to me all the time, they love it. They love the statement of like, oh, you don't like the, this universe? You don't like the way God set it up? Okay, well, get your own universe. <laughs> right? He's like, this is the way I made the world. I'm the uncreated creator. Who are you? You're here for a few years. There were a lot of people before you. There will be a lot of people after you. This world is older than you are, and God's eternal. So in one sense, who the heck are we to, to you know, shake our fist up at God? Yeah. But again, showing a clear uh, that God is the one that determines that. God's the one who determines who hears him, who responds. If he's a, if you're what kind of vessel we are, God's the one who determines that. Got anything else? One more. Jude 4. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. I wasn't listening to that because I was blowing smoke rings. Alex blew some smoke rings, so I was trying to Gandalf him and blow something special. Always over compete. <laughs> Sorry. Read it again. Read it again. All right. Sorry, guys. Jude verse 4. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah, boom. Yeah. There are only two types of human beings. And you can, the Bible calls them different names. Um, it's not the good and the bad but it's the elect 
and the non-elect. Mm. Vessels of wrath and vessels of mercy. Those in Christ and those out of Christ. Those um, from the seed of Christ and those from the seed of Satan. Yeah. And it's it's that's a hard truth, but it's also... Um, you know what? Honestly, all truth is kind of hard. Yeah. All truth is sharp. Yeah. Gravity's real hard. It's a hard truth. I don't like it. Well, jump off the roof, head first. You're going to find out the hard reality of that truth. You're going to find out with a trip to the hospital or maybe the morgue. That's how hard truth is. Life or death. And doctor election is, is uh, it's no different. And so, but again, I go back to that, what it says in article, eight, the last article, article eight, this isn't just to be a hard truth. It's meant to cause us to worship. It's meant to bring us back to say, man, God thought of me before the foundation of the world and he chose to save me. He walked down the corridor of my death row and he looked at me and said, yep, come here, you're my family. <sighs> Why would he do that? Why? Because he's gracious, that's it. And Jesus on the cross was thinking of me personally. Not just some, you know, ethereal mass of humanity theoretically dying on the cross for some, you know, potential person that might choose him. No, he was thinking of you by name on the cross as those nails went into his hands or in his wrists and into his feet and the spear went into his side your face entered into his mind and he said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And he said, it is finished. Their salvation is secure. That You, the one who's listening to this, you're elect in Christ. Jesus paid for your sins and you are saved. Amen. You are forgiven. You are being made new even right now. He will not lose you. You cannot out him. You cannot walk away from him. You not, cannot run away from him. That's how secure you are in Christ. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Can I just close with one last verse? No. Okay. Just joking. <laughs> yes, you can. Romans eleven thirty three says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how in inscrutable, inscrutable his, his ways. ways. Unsearchable and inscrutable. Good words. Yeah. Beyond reproach. Oh, God is good. Well, I hope you've been encouraged wherever you're at. Um, I love you as your pastor. Hope this has been a blessing to you. If you've got any questions, feel free to email us, and we'll be starting a new chapter uh, next time we come at you. And so we'll be coming at you with something a little bit different. We love you guys. God bless you. See you soon. <laughs>